0: Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at AskChrisShelton at gmail.com. And um, by the way, my queue is wide open for your questions about Scientology or critical thinking or destructive cults, manipulation propaganda, and anything else you'd like to ask me about. Um, so just wanted to throw that out there. Again, the email to send your questions to is askchrisshelton at gmail.com. If you put them in the comments section, it's pretty much a guarantee I won't see them because I am honestly paying less and less attention to the comments section of my YouTube channel now for reasons I've said many, many times already, So, including my mental health. <laughs> All right. Um, And on that note, by the way, I really, really want to thank a lot of you for such positive responses and feedback to the post I put up recently on my Patreon page and sent out to all my YouTube subscribers to let you know what was what with my um, views and things about what I'm going to be talking about on my channel. It was wonderful. I really got a flood of Awesome communication from you guys, and really proved out what I had been hoping, but sometimes it, you know negativity bias is strong, and sometimes when i when I get negative feedback it, it it sticks with me longer than the positive does, but this was absolutely the opposite effect, and um, again, thank you for that. Uh, By the way, happy 4th of July weekend, everybody. (laughs) I hope you guys are having a good time. Melissa and I definitely are. It has been a pretty wonderful weekend so far. I just want to say, since I tweeted this out and found that this is actually going on around the country, um, I really hope you guys are staying safe and not being jerks about the fireworks. You know, we were up until 2 o'clock last night with jerks running around in the neighborhood just throwing cherry bombs around for some reason. I... I don't really understand the thinking. I'm not, you know, a teenager anymore. And it's been a number of years since I was. <laughs> so maybe I just can't get myself in the I don't give a shit about anybody else headspace anymore. But um, it's really rude and really, really very inconsiderate to be running around uh, shooting off fireworks, not to mention that there are a lot of people who are suffering from PTSD or some other trauma, and that kind of stuff, especially in the middle of the night when you're trying to get to sleep, is the last thing that you need to be hearing. So it was important enough to me and seemed broad enough of a thing that I thought I'd mention it here on my show. Um, All right, so that all being said, let's go ahead and get on right to your answers or your questions now. James Hacker. I have a question concerning the LGBTQ community and Scientology. It seems like Scientology pretends to love us, but the tone scale says differently. Celebrities such as Kirstie Alley, Elizabeth Moss, and Laura Preppen have denied that being LGBTQ is wrong in Scientology. Is it possible that, being VIP Scientologists, they're sheltered from the truth, or are they straight up lying? Okay, James, thank you for your question, and while this has certainly been addressed many times, let me now actually go to the sacred texts of Dianetics and Scientology to answer this question, because here's the deal with the celebrities. They do the same Scientology that everybody else does. They're, they are treated differently with the VIP treatment, but the auditing processes and the books that, and the lectures that they listen to and read are the same. Um, All of those celebrities, Kirstie Alley, Elizabeth Moss, Laura Preppen, certainly Tom Cruise, um, certainly John Travolta even, actually, have read what I'm about to read you, because these come from the seminal works of Dianetics, uh, which is Dianetics, the Modern Science of Mental Health, which I'll read from first, and then the second book of Dianetics, which came out in 1951, called Science of Survival. Um, especially since 2004, there's been a massive push on all Scientologists to read these books. Prior to 2003, 2004, where I can't remember exactly what year the basics came out, all the the revisions were done of the basic Scientology texts and lectures, um... And that was a massive thing. But prior to that time, it could have been possible that you could be a dianeticist or, or rather, a scientologist, and not have read dianetics for years. It could have been that way that you'd never even approached it, or you know, sort of skimmed it or something. Um, you didn't. It wasn't necessarily on any of the coursework that you were going to do. At least not for quite a while until you got, you know, at least up to the what was called the solo or is called the solo auditor course, which is after you go clear or on your way to getting to clear, you have to somehow you have to get trained to engage in what's called solo auditing, where you're going to sit in a room and audit yourself. Um that is a, an advanced thing to be doing in, in Scientology. So at that point, on that course, is when people would read Dianetics. And Science of Survival wasn't even on that course. You had to do a different course called the PTSSP course in order to be exposed to Science of Survival. And not everybody was doing that until Miscavige put it down and really started emphasizing that people had to do those services and they did a whole revision on the PTSSP course. And that was done, of course, to convince Scientologists that if anybody was hostile or antagonistic or critical of Dianetics or Scientology, they were SPs, they were bad guys, they were antisocial personalities. That's the entire reason you do the PTSSP course, is to find out who the SPs are, and basically the course tells you, anybody who doesn't like Scientology, (laughs) you know, know, obviously there's there's a little more nuance to it than that, but that's, that's the basic bottom line of it. So the point is that since 2004, everybody's been covering this material. You, it, you will be hard-pressed to find somebody in Scientology these days who hasn't read this stuff. And I talked in my podcast yesterday, which I encourage you all y'all to see. Um, um, I talked about confirmation bias and predictive and how the brain works and stuff. And I'm not going to cover that stuff again. But I will say that you're getting hit with it so hard here. And, and you're hit with it two different places, Dianetics and Science of Survival, that it's a little hard to read this material and not get the point that Hubbard's making. I mean, he's pretty clear about this, and I'm going to read it to you so you get what I'm talking about. So first, let us read from the scriptures from Dianetics. Hubbard writes, this is again, 1950. Uh, Here we go. The sexual pervert, and by this term, Dianetics, to be brief, includes any and all forms of deviation in dynamic two, which is having to do with sex, such as homosexuality, lesbianism, sexual sadism, etc., and all down the catalog of Ellis and Kraft Ebbing. Is a, okay, so he says the sexual pervert, and then that was all in parentheses, so the sexual per- pervert is actually quite ill physically. Perversion, as an illness, has so many manifestations that it must be spread through the entire gamut of classes from one to five above. Overdevelopment of sexual organs, underdevelopment, seminal inhibition or magnification, etc., are found some in one pervert, some in another. And the sum of it is that the pervert is always a very ill person in one way or another, whether he is conscious of it or not. He is very far from culpable for his condition, but he is also so far from normal and so extremely dangerous to society that the tolerance of perversion is as thoroughly bad for society as punishment for it. Lacking proper means prior to this time, society has been caught between tolerance and punishment. And the problem of perversion has, of course, not been resolved. Okay, so that is um, pretty clear, right? Hubbard also later says that the pervert contains hundreds and hundreds of vicious engrams, has had little choice between being dead and being a pervert. So Hubbard, you can see here is is in the 1950s mentality of you know conservative Christian America, um, and you know post World War II values and Midwest values, which is how Hubbard was brought up. He's putting all of this into here to say that pretty clearly that tolerating perversion such as lesbianism, homosexuality, et cetera, is tolerating a kind of psychosis or mental illness. And that Dianetics is the thing that finally offers a solution so that we don't have to punish these poor people anymore for the that which they are not responsible for as perverts. They were born or you know have experienced all these engrams, and so that's why they are the way they are, the poor things. And so here is now Dianetics to save the day and offer a humane solution to the problem. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, This is still current work in in Scientology. People who will go into an org right now will read this stuff. Um, Okay. In Science of Survival, you mentioned in your question, James, the Tone Scale And the Tone Scale is an emotional chart that that, uh, claims that you can predict human behavior based on a person's emotional responses and where a person is both temporarily in an emotional state... And chronically, on a long-term basis, Hubbard says people tend to, to gravitate towards a particular emotional state or tone level. And this is how you can predict their behavior over time on different subjects. And Science of Survival pretends to be a manual on the prediction of human behavior, using these emotions as the guide. And each emotion is assigned a numeric value, and 1.1 on the scale, and the tone scale goes from 40 at the top to minus 40 at the bottom. So 1.1 is the level of what is called covert hostility. And in each chapter of Science of Survival, Hubbard breaks down behavior in a particular area or part of life or or how they'll respond to therapy or treatment even, and he breaks it down level by level on this chart. So here he is describing um, communication, and um, I thought this might be interesting to you as far as further information about what Hubbard says about homosexuality and how perverts will respond or communicate. He says at 1.1... We have lying to avoid real communication. Okay, again, this is covert hostility. This is the image that's connected with this 1.1 1. 1 is the guy who's smiling while he's holding a knife behind his back and is just waiting to get it into you. That's 1.1 1. 1 in a nutshell. So Hubbard connects that with perversion as follows. He says... Uh, they, you, they have lying to avoid real communication. It takes the form of pretended agreement, flattery, or verbal appeasement, or simply a false picture of the person's feelings and ideas, a false facade, an artificial personality. Here is the level of covert hostility, the most dangerous and wicked level on the tone scale. Here is the person who smiles while he inserts a knife blade between your vertebrae. Here is the person who tells you how he has stood up for you when actually he has practically destroyed your reputation. Here is the insincere flatterer who yet awaits only a moment of unguardedness to destroy. The conversation of this level is filled with small barbs, which are immediately afterwards justified as intended compliments." Talking with such a person is the maddening procedure of boxing with a shadow. One realizes that something is wrong, but the guardedness of a 1.1 will not admit anything wrong, even as, all the while, he does his best to upset and wreak havoc. This is the level of the pervert, the homosexual, the turncoat. This is the level of the subversive. Okay, so again, direct quote from L. Ron Hubbard's works from 1950, 1951, which every you can pretty much be assured anybody who's been involved in Dianetics or Scientology for any length of time, and I'd say maybe more than a year at this point, is going to start being exposed to this. And the celebrities, again, no exception. So do they know this? Have they read this? Yeah, they have. Should they know that this is what it says when they're making public statements about it? Absolutely, because even if they haven't personally read or seen this material, um, I mean, let's, let's go crazy far out of our way to give them the benefit of the doubt that they haven't read this material. This is public information, nothing I read to you right now is confidential. You can go into a bookstore and pick up Dianetics and read exactly what I just read uh, read to you. So would it even be that they would get a pass if they said that Dianetics or Scientology is pro-LGBT or doesn't have a problem with LGBT knowing that this is what Hubbard wrote in public-level books? right even if they don't personally know when they're making public statements they are making them based on what they were briefed on by their handlers their celebrity handlers in Scientology so somebody if they're saying that this is that these things i read to you are not true or that that's not the way it is now in Scientology somebody's lying to somebody and if they don't they don't have the ability to do their own due diligence about their own religion and tell the truth about it, then what does that say about them as people, you know? And that's kind of where we're at with this. And, uh, and Scientology celebrities are liars. All you got to do is look at what L. Ron Hubbard actually wrote, and, and also understand that no Scientologist has an option to not buy into that. They don't get to make a choice and say, well, that's not true. I don't think that's real. I don't think that all all homosexuals are or all, you know, LGBTQ are are not liars, are not one-one. You don't get to get away with saying that within the world of Scientology. If you do, you're going to be sat down in front of somebody and you're going to be clearing up a lot of words and a lot of dictionaries until you agree with what Hubbard wrote. As I've gone over. So that's the truth of the matter, James. And um, I thought I'd give a really thorough answer with the quotes this time. uh, So it's not just my, you know, from my own opinion or experience. So there you go. Jeffrey Shantz Given that Scientology keeps records of all your sessions, what happens if the PC is a pathological liar and is making up new material in each auditing session that doesn't match up with what they've said before? How would they move you forward if it all seemed to be random information? Okay, well, Jeff, thanks for this question. It's a really good one, actually. Uh, nobody's ever asked me anything like this before. And the, um, the way this, there's a couple of different ways this could be dealt with. It would depend on how important and how repeated the person's lies were and how obvious they were. You get a lot of latitude when you go into an auditing session and start talking about your past experiences especially when you get into past lives. Now, if I mean you can just it's it's carte blanche. You can say anything you want about what's happened to you in a past life and really nobody's going to have a whole lot to say about it. In the book *Science of Survival*, which I was just quoting from in the last question, uh, Hubbard actually talks about the um, the therape- therapeutic value of running imaginary incidents. So you could even end up running things that the auditor knows and the case supervisor knows, and you're told it's okay. Just let your imagination run wild, and that could be done in order to get a person who was, say, stuck not being able to run a whole lot of anything. Or there might be other – this is just off my memory right now – there might be other reasons for imaginary incidents to be run, but you could – you could do that, still get some kind of therapeutic value from it, Hubbard said, and and nobody's the worse for wear, right? Everybody knows it's, it's just imagination. That's pretty rare, though. It's expected that when you go into auditing, you're going to be telling the truth, especially about stuff that's happened to you this lifetime. Um, you're not supposed to just be going in and making stuff up. But the way auditing works is that sometimes you're, it's, it, the, the e-meter is being used to guide the session and guide the answering. So if I ask you, a, you know, a question or, or we're looking at running something, you know, uh, have you ever been run over by a bulldozer or something, right? And, um, and you're, you know, yeah, sure, when I was 10, uh, you know, a bulldozer ran over my foot or whatever, and maybe that's real. And then you're going back, and there's still not the expected floating needle, and so you're going earlier. Okay, well, was there an earlier time you were, you know, run over by a bulldozer, and I can't find one, can't find one, can't find one. Well, then the needle is used on the e-meter, right? It starts ticking, and the auditor is trained to look for a similar or the same, rather, pattern in the needle to how it responded when the question was first asked, If the needle fell one inch, then the auditor is looking for that one inch fall again. And he might start looking at that and going, oh, hey, wait a minute, there's that one inch fall again. What was that? What was that thought you just had? And the guy's like, I don't know. And he goes, okay, well, take a look at that again. Uh, And the guy starts thinking about stuff. And there, there, what's that, right? The needle's clicking and the guy's like, oh, what's that? And, you know, the guy at the uh, at, at holding the cans, the person receiving the auditing might be sitting over there going, I don't know, I got a picture of an apple. OK, well, something about this apple, something about this apple connected with a bulldozer, something with this apple. Like, what's what are you looking at with that? Right. And you're trying to develop it like a Polaroid picture. Right. Remember those? That's kind of how auditing is done often, is the meter is used to guide the person and find what it is that they're thinking about that's supposed to somehow be an answer to the question. And eventually, it has to kind of make sense that the information that the preclear is giving is relevant to, is sequitur to the question being asked, but it might start out with something really out in left field, like an apple or something, and then you find out you know, that could develop into something like the guy was, uh, you know, 300 years ago was picking apples in an apple orchard, uh, or I don't know, 300 million years ago, he was picking apples in an apple orchard, and a bulldozer came along and mowed him down, right? I mean, who knows, right? Um, that's the kind of thing that could develop. Now, um, if you have a guy, though, who—so so it's real hard to say, oh, you're lying, in a situation like that, and that kind of a one-off thing, that's the only time you might end up talking about that bulldozer running over you in that field three hundred million years ago. So, not going to be so obvious whether you're pathologically in just making stuff up when you're running stuff like that. So, it's really going to be more obvious in your current life, and if, and that's where uh, you could actually, you know, kind of some kind of evidentiary basis for an auditor and a case supervisor could foreseeing that the preclear is, is you know, perhaps purposefully altering the truth about what's happened to them in the here and now. And if that kind of stuff starts coming up, where it's just contradictory, where they have earlier reports that said this and this, and the guy's saying, well, you know, XYZ instead of ABC, and, you know, it, it starts coming out that way, then a case supervisor could start putting processes together. Customized for that preclear, for the pathological lying preclear, to address the subject of lying and perhaps even get into finding evil purposes and evil intentions connected with distorting the truth or fabricating reality or, you know, there's lots and lots of ways that you could word that. And case supervisors can put lists together of various ways of lying or different words connected with lying and using the e-meter, start running down that list of words and use those to, if they respond on the meter, use those to start, say, um, security checking the person on times he had purposefully lied or... Reversely, maybe this guy, as a pathological liar, thinks lying is the ethical and moral thing to do. And so you start pulling from him times when telling the truth was the wrong was was what he thought was the wrong thing to do. So you start pulling from him, you know, these um, these sort of reverse overts, if you will, these these wrongdoings that he's committed, where he actually told the truth. Because you know, if you look at the world through the lens of a pathological liar, telling the truth is the wrong thing to do. Lying is the ethical, moral thing to do for that individual in any given circumstance. That's why they lie, right? So, or at least that could be one reason if you were looking at it through a moral lens. There could be other reasons people are pathological liars, but that could be one reason that a case supervisor might assume. And he might enter it through that moral lens and use sex checking to address it and then get to the evil purposes at the bottom of it all. So that might be another route where they are really trying to now deal with and tackle the lying as a thing that has to be dealt with. So either of those could come up. It would totally depend on the context and and situation there. So there was a very thorough answer to your question. I uh, I hope it elucidates. Beria. There is a Scientology org in Vancouver. What confuses me is Scientology wants to attract well-off people, and their location is in the worst downtown location possible. Lots of homelessness, drugs, prostitution. It's all around sketchy. I've never seen anyone on the sidewalk trying to attract people into it. They have no pamphlets or flyers on display outside, and they have virtually no presence other than the building signage. Why would the Church of Scientology persist in maintaining an org in such an undesirable location? They're certainly not trying to recruit any of the locals. Not that I am disparaging the homeless by any means. Okay, cool. So what you're seeing in Vancouver is a non-ideal organization. And, um, of course, from day one, I've been talking about ideal orgs. The whole effort by David Miscavige to upgrade and renovate all the churches all over the world and Vancouver is one that hasn't been gotten to yet. They might have purchased a building now. I didn't I didn't I don't remember, but they are not renovated and moved into it. So they're still in their crappy quarters that they've always been in. And those are the ones that they can afford to pay for, see. They can make the rent and lease payments on that building. I don't know if Vancouver owns its building. I suspect probably not. Most of the non-ideal orgs are rented or leased. Buildings, And this was a problem, you know, that we dealt with all the time from management is these churches were so income desperate, were so not making money, that they could barely afford to stay in a ramshackle, crappy place in the middle of, you know, a really bad part of town. I mean, San Francisco was in the Tenderloin area of, of that uh town, and that was—they had this big four-story building, and it was really— you know this this kind of interesting building, but it was in this really really bad part of town. Um, many many Scientology churches are, especially the ones again that are non ideal. Um, so that's been the whole strategy for the last you know, almost twenty years now is to deal with that and and get the local parishioners to fundraise, buy a new building, renovate it, and then move into that one. And then there's no more rent problems or leasing problems because they own the building outright. And then they have a really nice place and it, and they generally don't put those places in um, you know really low rent bad districts. They find some you know historical building or nicer building and they do it that way. Um, but every, every church area is different. You'll find exceptions all over the place to what I just said. So um, so why would they persist in that area? Because they don't have the money to do anything else. You know, the local city-level churches are pretty broke places. And often they're not even making much of a uh, payment up the line to management for the services management gives them, quote-unquote. Uh, and the other necessary payments they're supposed to make to the, to the central Scientology headquarters. So, um, you know, sometimes they had to be bailed out. They had to have Sea Org members come and make the rent for them. I used to do that all the time. So um, it's a constant problem, and that's why you see that uh, the way that it is. And Canada has never been a big place for Scientology. None of the churches of, of Scientology in Canada are at all successful, booming, big places. They've always been struggling along in their little hobnailed way. So there you go. TLC Timbo. I was listening to a recent Sensibly Speaking podcast with John Atack, and the discussion of prisons being for punishment, not rehabilitation, made me think of the RPF, which is obviously not a re-education camp, but actually punishment for Sea Org members what other punishment mechanisms are available in Scientology to inflict upon staff and public Scientologists? Okay, cool. Well, let me correct you, actually, because I have many, many times called the RPF a re-education camp, because that is what it is. Uh, In the spirit or tradition of Maoist re-education camps that we saw in communist China during the Cultural Revolution, and uh, which were studied in detail by Robert J. Lifton, right? So... Um, so they are very much that, and yes, it is punishment, but it's also reindoctrination. This is really important to understand. With the RPF program, is it is about getting your head clear, and it takes years sometimes to get the reindoctrination done. In fact, the RPF has never done in less time than a year. I think the less, the least amount of time I ever saw anybody do that program was about two and a half years. And that was like full tilt boogie, you know, balls to the wall getting through the thing. So, um, so it's not a short program, and it's intended to get your head straight and get you back into being a fanatical Sea Org member who will not question orders and will be very, very loyal. That's the actual end result of the RPF or the, the wanted or desired end result. Okay, so that being clarified a little bit, you ask about punishments for the Scientology staff and public. Yeah, because the RPF also, by the way, is not for staff and public. It is only for the Sea Org. Um, but the punishment mechanisms are many, and they basically involve either physical, uh, grueling, hard work, um, that's at all levels. More, you know, the the spectrum of awfulness, you know, gets worse and worse as you go up the line. So the Sea Org members, for example, are getting the worst punishments. The RPF is re education and punishment, but there are other punishments Sea Org members can get, like, for example, the stories we hear out of the gold base about people having to dig in the hot sun and dig ditches and then fill them back up, or having to work in the lake and it's, you know, you're just covered in all this crap and you're just out there for, you know, all day under the hot, burning sun. So, um, So you have that kind of grueling work. You also have cleaning taken to a level that is just pure torture including, um, you know, the, the, the toothbrush uh, cleaning toilets and, and the tile floors of a bathroom and stuff like that. I mean, you get that kind of work, which has been dished out all the way down to the public level. Um, I think it was Nazanin uh, uh, I, I Forgive me if I'm getting her last name wrong. She's a celebrity. And after she got uh, sort of busted off the Tom Cruise detail, because uh, he, they were dating, and she said the wrong thing at the wrong time, and and pissed him off. So she ended up scrubbing toilets at Flag. So this even can go to celebrities, right? Of course, that kind of showed her what was really what, and she got out of Scientology pretty quickly after that. Um, let's see. Um, so cleaning, uh, men's projects. You know, this could be punishment. Though, is uh, you know it's a little bit different from amends as such. I mean, amends projects for the public and staff involve paying money, going out and, and, and promoting Dianetics and Scientology in a public venue, giving out way to happiness books, you know, stuff like that. But that's not really punishment. It's, it's, it's amends. You're making up for having done something that you acknowledge was wrongdoing. And so you kind of agree that this was wrong, and so I'm going to do this. Although I guess, I guess, I don't know, my logic might be a little fuzzy on that because the punishment's sort of the same kind of thing. But um, let's see. What other things could be done to you besides paying out money? Um, oh, well, of course, you know, sometimes people just get beat on. Uh, again, that's more Sea Org, though. I I rarely heard of staff or um, public getting beat on. Um, there are ethics actions that can be done there's actually a whole list of them Uh, there's a court of ethics then there's a committee of evidence and then there's getting declared suppressive so these are the sort of the scale you have to climb in order to get all the way to getting exiled or or kicked out of the church Uh, sometimes they skip right to the sp but often they'll get those interim points in too And so punishments you could face for some of the, from, say, a committee of evidence could be having to pay for and receive auditing, like security checks. Um, Or, let's see, um, yeah, just having to basically demean and and abase yourself. I mean, that's really debase yourself. That's that's really kind of what it comes down to. There's so many different ways it manifests, but it really comes down to hard, physical, grueling work, repetitive... Um, you know, sort of like just mind numbing stuff. Um, actual physical punishments, like the digging, the you know, the ditches and stuff like that. Um, yeah, those are the things that come to mind right now. So I guess that's pretty much my my best answer to the question right now. I hope I'm not forgetting something really super significant, but those are the things that come to mind to to answer your question. Mark Pulis, learning how the cult operates and its beliefs help to understand the state of mind the people in it are in. Is there a chance of an overthrow of the current leadership? Or the chance that a former paying member is attempting to start a revival of the old Scientology, a new branch of Scientology, so to speak, bigger and more effective than the free zone groups? Well, Mark, there's always a chance of anything. And yes, David Miscavige could theoretically be overthrown, but that would involve a conspiracy which would be almost impossible to form because no one individual is going to be able to do it. And every time there is any kind of a conspiracy or, or um, disaffection amongst his inner circle or the people who could theoretically pull it off— they get found out because they all believe that the e-meter is real and that they have to answer questions when they're you know, holding the cans. And, and so Miscavige is constantly, you know, surveying and keeping a very sharp eye out for anybody who might potentially be a threat to him. So that's, that's the number one way he gets in the way of Scientology's future is he refuses to have any future put there beyond him. And, of course, that was pretty much the way Hubbard operated as well. So is there a chance that there could be an overthrow? Sure, of course there is. People could get together and make it happen. But are they going to? Probably not. <laughs> um, not unless there's something we don't know about you know, happening up there. And as far as um, former paying members attempting to start a revival, basically what you've described there is the Free Zone. The Free Zone independent Scientology groups, whether they call themselves part of the Free Zone or something else, the Great Plains Academy or whatever these other groups are, the first independent Scientology group or something, or Church of Scientology, I think is an official name of another group, you know, whichever of these groups are out there doing that's that is what they're trying to do is become the official brand or flavor of Scientology. And this is, you know, pretty classic stuff in history. You see splinter groups, you know, and people have asked me many times about whether, you know, what happens when David Miscavige dies. Well, you know, a very, very real possibility is that it just fractures. And who knows which ones ends up being which one ends up being the official. You know, Scientology, with which still has access to the bank accounts. I'd say that's the official one. <laughs> because let's keep in mind always, always, that Scientology is not about being a religion that's going to last through the ages to save mankind. Scientology is a pipsqueak, destructive cult which uh, has as its main purpose making money. It is a money-making scam, and it's only using religious cloaking to hide that. So, you know, the splinter groups and this other stuff, I mean, yeah, that could happen, and these guys could form legit little church groups that aren't money-making operations or money-making scams, and that's kind of what they're doing. But look at how unsuccessful they are. Look at how pathetically tiny they are they're not changing anything they're just you know kind of jerking each other off really and that's pretty much independent scientology at its best right now it's it's awful it's pathetic you know i mean to be to be totally blunt about it and and really sort of let my hair down on the matter <laughs> so that is what you're seeing is is the point i'm trying to make it's uh, so you know could a former paying member try to start a revival. Yeah, it probably happens all the time that they get out and start some splinter group or some squirrel group, and and uh, are part of the you know what we call independent Scientology. So there's there's lots of factions there, and that's my answer to your question. All right, it is time for flash answers. Jay Colby. Hi Chris, I wanted to know what Scientology is doing now if someone has to go to the hospital. You've said that there's a buddy that needs to go with them. If hospitals are only allowing patients in and no visitors or friends allowed in to wait with them, what happens? Okay, well obviously if somebody gets to the point, and let's talk about the Sea Org here, because public and staff is not on the buddy system, so the Sea Org is what I was referring to with that. If a staff member or a public Scientologist needs to go to the hospital because of, say, a COVID disaster, They're gonna go, and um, they don't have to be under watch. They don't have to have somebody with them. They're gonna go, and they're gonna get the treatment that they need. For a Org member, though, they're gonna wait till the very, 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 very last possible second. And sometimes that has had some fairly disastrous consequences. We haven't heard any dead bodies on the pack base or at flag, and so maybe they, you know, so maybe everything's cool there. And All I can tell you is from my own experience in the Sea Org, people going to the hospital was something that was put off until the very last second. You know, a lot of Scientology crap being done on them in an effort to alleviate the symptoms, but COVID isn't going to respond to a touch assist. And if somebody really gets in a bad way, then they're going to have to go to the hospital. And the hospital situation, as you described, doesn't allow for people hanging out with them, and they won't make exceptions. So... That's just going to, the Sea Org members in a bad enough way, that's, they're going to have to go, and that's, how, that's what's going to happen. David Anderson, do you think Scientology is still declaring people to be an SP, suppressive person? And do they still provide a golden rod certificate when they do? What about the number of SPs surpassing the number of members, or has it already? And how do you think the print shop is doing? Yes, I do think that every single person who's declared a suppressive person has a piece of goldenrod paper describing their crimes and officially formally declaring them suppressive. However, they do not give those out anymore, and they barely ever post them even on the notice boards unless it's necessary for something. Um, They keep them in file in HCO, is how they put it. And if you are curious about a particular individual who has been declared, then you can go visit HCO or OSA, depending on where uh, the uh, declare order is stored, and um, potentially read it. Um, There probably are more people declared at this point through Scientology's history than there are remaining members of Scientology, actually considering the list of thousands of people who have spoken out about Scientology, for example, and lots of other people who were declared who never spoke out about it. So, uh, yeah, so I think that's definitely still a thing. Adria VZ Aloub, flash answer, do you ever listen to Stephen Colbert's news monologues? They usually make me laugh, and I was wondering if you got a laugh out of them, too. Hey, sorry for butchering your name again. I know we've been over this. I, ugh, I have no excuse. I just kind of suck. But <laughs> as far as Stephen Colbert's monologues go, um, I used to watch him a lot more than I do now. I found, after I started, uh, probably about a year ago or so, you know, I started seeing some some chinks in the armor of of left wing comedian media stuff, and started seeing you know, ideas being forwarded and laughed about and comedy being made about things that actually weren't true. And I was like, and I had a hard time kind of laughing with it when I knew that the that the news they were basing that on was actually skewed slanted media. And this doesn't mean that, you know, that I've that I'm, you know, bucking for, you know, the right wing and how great they are, because pretty much everything I've ever said on that end is also still true. But I noticed that the propaganda is flying fast and furious on both sides, and while I know that's controversial, come on, guys, you know everybody's got their biases, and I totally understand that people who have left wing biases perceive that there's less left wing bias than there is right wing bias, and studies have been done about this, and we know that, uh, say, Fox News is certainly, statistically speaking, more inaccurate factually than say MSNBC and CNN, but that's not to give MSNBC and CNN a pass or left-wing media in general because the statistics on their fact factualness ain't so great either it's just not as bad as fox news so what do you do with that right well everybody's got their own decisions to make about it and all i say at the end of the day good you know left right center top bottom whatever red green blue i don't care who you are Please apply critical thinking to the news that you're reading. So that all being said, (laughs) I got to do that whole thing to say that I love Stephen Colbert, but sometimes the stuff he makes jokes about is misinformation or is just straight up wrong. And that got a little distracting to me, so I had a hard time watching late night TV anymore. Okay, everybody, so that's the show for this week. Thanks for watching and uh, and tuning in here. I really appreciate your questions, and I want more of them. Please send them to me, again, at AskChrisShelton at gmail.com. And um, I'll end with the usual plugs here, of course, that if you find my content educational, informative, and maybe entertaining consider joining me through Patreon or supporting the show through one-off support through PayPal. Links below. Always, always, every single video I've posted has links to my Patreon page and my PayPal in the description section of the video. So, uh, and join us for our live streams. I'm not sure if I'm doing one this Tuesday, but definitely Wednesday night. We will be doing Critical Conversations, and I will be joined by my lovely wife, Melissa, right here. And we will be talking uh, about something. Not quite sure what the theme of this week's show will be. The last two weeks, we have done mental health. And Melissa and I have gotten, gotten pretty personal about some things. And she has really made some amazing points. And we have gotten some callers who have really, really been uh, very, very uh, kind and sharing uh, of their experiences with that. So if you haven't checked out my Critical Conversation show... Not everybody, of course, can join live when we do it uh, Wednesdays at 7, but I would encourage you to check it out because we talk about some pretty interesting stuff. All right, so that all being said, and also Critical Clips, my other YouTube channel. Uh, If you want the clips and and short bursts of uh, data from me on very specific topics, that is the channel to subscribe to, and I would really, really love to boost that channel a bit as well. So link to that is also below. And with that, we will end the show for this week. Thanks, guys. Talk to you next week. Bye-bye.